Hi, I'm Tim Zacharias with Cougar USA and your host of Building Value. My guest today is Kyle Hunter with KCI Technologies. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. We have a really great episode planned for you today. Going to be talking about Kyle's background, uh, a little bit about HVAC systems, how the air and water are impacted, especially at partial load conditions. And most importantly, we're going to be talking about some bourbon. On Building Value, we go behind the scenes at some of the most iconic buildings in Texas to showcase the incredible people that design, build, and maintain them and their impact on the community. You could kind of set the stage for us a little bit. I know you've had you know, a broad past doing right. a lot of different things, so uh, maybe talk us through a little bit how, what you did after high school okay. and that path that you took to get to where we are now. Okay, so... Um, and then we can talk about the bourbon. And then we can talk about the bourbon. So, uh, you know, my dad is a pretty hilarious gentleman, and uh, he was like, listen, I, I'll help you go to school if you go to school for engineering. But anything else, uh, when summer comes around, you can go find a job and leave. And I was like, well... <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I was like, um, I feel like college is a lot better than working because I'd already... I, you know, I always had some kind of a part job part-time job, farmhand kind of thing since I was 12. And uh, and I was just like, uh, you know, the movies make college seem pretty awesome. And um, while I didn't get any sports scholarships, I did get a partial scholarship. And I went to a school in Southern Oregon called OIT, Oregon Institute of Technology. And man, I love that place. I, I, it's really growing. Some A lot of smart people coming out of there. Um, I was not one of those smart people. Um, I was, uh, every professor was like, uh, Hunter, like, I'm glad you passed your classes, but I don't know if you're an engineer. And I'm like, well, okay, but it has amazing fly fishing. And I'm glad to see that that place is doing really well. It's a beautiful place. Um, so that's really engineering. Like how I got into engineering really has, it's, I like people having problems and I like, do whenever I can to solve those problems. Um, so that's that's really how I got here. Uh, water has always been a very big, interesting point for me. Um, I cashed out my personal savings and retirement. I got about 35K and started a nonprofit called Stewardship International and ran around the world doing water treatment systems and uh, had an invention, which was a water transportation device. So and sometimes, you know, when the water's here and you want it there, you don't necessarily pump it. You put it in a ball and right. roll it. And and that's what I did there. And because what I realized is the big the big need in uh, de developing country infrastructure was the fact that these Western Westerners were coming over with these mindsets and applying these strategies, these huge pump distribution, uh, distributed water systems, and which is great when you have um, like law enforcement. But think think if you have a community of 100 people and you have one well, okay. And then, so if you have one well, all right, if somebody wanted to take over that water, if the meanest three people in the out of those 100 wanted to take over that water and make you pay them to use that water, there you go, you're done. So- And you don't think about that. Right. You don't until you're there, until you see it. And then when you see it, you go, no, that these pump systems don't work. And they do work once they grow into 
another level of security and another level of economy. But so what I wanted to do was, all right, how do I come up with a multifamily solution to water quality? Okay. That was, that was the, like inside my head, how do I do that? So then I, I really was thinking about, um, wastewater and uh, these dry composting toilets. And then I was really thinking about, okay, how do you do uh, chlorinization of water in order to take out the uh, everything that's in sure. it, really the, mainly the fecal matter contagion. And then, and then okay, so then I, it, it's just this cascading learning process. And then I was like, all right, well, fetching water is, is women's work. And so you're like, well, all right, so, you have these young women that are exp- they're walking miles, they're exposed, things are, you know, they're vulnerable out there. So how do we make it a system that will, we can't really remove the vulnerability, but maybe we remove the frequency of the vulnerability. And so then you start looking at, okay, you're gonna carry a three gallon bucket on your head for anywhere between six to 12 miles. Like 25 pounds. Right, right. Um, you know, you and I both have young kids are about 25 pounds. Like picture carrying that guy for six, six miles. Like there's no way that's not happening. Like you will disown him probably two miles <laughs> in. <laughs> right. So then in the, in that journey, I, I found a chiropractor that was, uh, I, I wrapped him into my passion, much like, you know, Adam and his pumps. And, um, I was like, what would it do to a young, like adolescent body to carry that weight every day for that distance. And so then he started putting together like these, how the spine was compacted and you get uh, deformations and stuff. And I was like, man, this is, this is a huge thing. We need a solution to this. And then uh, what really, the way we came to the solution, I, I knew all these problems. I had the, this great opportunity to go and spend some time with some amazing people in central Mexico and, lifelong friends down there and I spent time in a barrio outside of Guadalajara and and I really love those people and it really opened my eyes and 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 that's what started that was I told them I go listen I don't have money but I'm an engineer and I'll, I'll come back with something and I and eventually I did but I didn't really develop this water ball and how to move the the water in a different way until uh uh, the Texas Board of Engineers decided that my engineering experience wasn't enough uh, uh, because I didn't go to uh, MEP, uh, ME accredited school. We were as a mechanical engineering technology school, which was accredited in that. Hmm. And I was young in my early, I was 25 and didn't read the application well enough. And I was pretty disheartened from the whole thing and uh drank way too much bourbon and then the next day <laughs> i uh woke up and had my feet on the floor and i was just like now what and then I, I i came up with the idea of rolling water instead of carrying it and used the t- world's two most common uh materials and uh which is industrial materials sorry uh which is hdpe and mm-hmm. pvc use pvc for the handles and you know just made it happen and then um to, to make that happen, what I did is I stepped out of consulting engineering for two years and I was a high school teacher. 
uh, at Lanier High School in Austin, Texas. And then um, during the summers, I'd run around the world doing these little systems. So now, you know, I'm back and um, it would be great to be a teacher. It'd be great to be a baseball coach like it was. It'd be great to be running around the world uh, doing these water treatment systems. But the older I get, the more I realize that's, you know, I, I didn't really cause those issues particularly and I need to find a way to look internally and how to how to sustain a family so went back to consulting engineering I've been doing that for about 15 years and you know I get really excited about efficiency and um, you know sick building syndrome and uh, and whenever I can find a client that's also interested in those things man I'll I'll come up with any any system you want as fish as efficient <laughs> as you can. Um, we'll make we'll make lead look like code minimum, but you got to find the the finances to do it. Sure, I mean there's some creative ways to do that as well, but you know I think it's uh, that's a, a pretty unique perspective mm-hmm. on things. And not a lot of people would have actually, you know, you, you had the idea and the passion, but not a lot of people would have followed through with it. Right. And uh, you know I think that's that, that's really cool and that that legacy still lives on right i mean the water yeah. ball is still yeah still doing its thing right? yeah i mean we got to a place where we made about 40 of them um they traveled the world i got one in my garage um kind of as a reminder that like uh maybe because i almost died several times in, in in dealing with all of this i was in the most dangerous city in the world at the time called city soleil outside of uh outside of port-au-prince haiti and that was like, man, that was like two weeks after that earthquake. So just a lot of decisions that a single 20-year-old man can make, but not something that uh, like a grown adult should be doing. Like, um, So yeah, it was, it was a heck of a ride. Um, gave me a lot of perspective. Sure. A lot of gratitude for where I'm at. Um, but just uh, I couldn't have planned it. And I, I think that's... Uh, I think that's why I'm drawn to people who, who genuinely have a passion, like anything you like, and you know, like kind of talking to my wife right now, I'm like, even pumps, even, even pumps, like just go all in, sure, all in on pumps and t- let, let your enthusiasm feed my enthusiasm. And man, I'll take that enthusiasm to the next person. That's awesome. And you know, I, I'll, I'll bring it up briefly just the the walk for water that that we're involved with i, I think right. we talked about that a little bit but that's a um you know an effort that grumfoss does in conjunction with water mission mm-hmm. and it's a cool fundraiser the way they do it and they basically make you reenact that process cool of going to go walk for, for water mm-hmm. <laughs> right um very, you know it's, i'm I, I love the name because I'm like extremely literal when I come up with <laughs> names for our products and things like that. I'm I, like, I could tell. Yeah. It's like, this is not, uh, that's not my uh, strong point, but it, it's great. And we took uh, Mikey, my, my six year old son uh-huh. and he got a smaller bucket. Wow. But like you said, I mean, we made it about 500 feet <laughs> with that bucket and he kind of looks at me like, mm-hmm. dad, can you, yeah. can you carry this? And just to, to be able to introduce that conversation about the gratitude, like you said, to be appreciative right. of where you're at, what we, take for granted a lot right here the, the ability to turn on the tap and, and yep. have clean water and and to 
be able to kind of have that conversation right. uh, even at six years old is uh has been been cool so that yeah typically in the fall but we'll, we'll see this year if we're able to to yeah. do it again so no, i i love those efforts um you know the water quality is the number one killer in the world of children under the age of five and i think uh adults over the age of like 55 and i love that and anything that expands your mindset any that any discussion that can expand your mindset, any any nugget that you can learn from any situation in any any human being is great. Um, you know, I one of my most favorite things was when I returned home once. At, I hadn't had a shower or running plumbing in three months, and I took that first hot shower, and um, I was just like, wow. It was kind of like a, it was, it was like time warping because it was like, I was still in the mountains of Guatemala until I took that shower. And then I was back in Texas. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a, you know, I just can't even imagine going that long right. without some of those basic you right. know, utilities, I guess. Right. Right. And you know, it, it's a, it's a different world and, Walking for water is great, and uh, finding a way to engage that in on any level, and as frequently as possible, th those kind of like empathetic uh, like practices mm -hmm. to where you try to you know walk for water and walk in somebody else's shoes. Exactly, th man. That's there's nothing bad about that. Yeah, we uh, we definitely enjoyed that, and I'm hoping we get to do it uh, this fall again. So. Mm -hmm. Here, let's uh, let's drink to that. Okay, to water. Yeah. So, what? Tell us about this bourbon. Okay, so this bourbon is uh, the best bourbon you can get in the lower price range. Um, really complex. It's not very sweet. I don't like sweet rye rye whiskeys. Um, I used to be. I, I got a. I get introduced to Scotch by. Um, a priest that was a friend of mine and uh a lot of great stories there but then <laughs> say I'm gonna <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm gonna right. Need some explanation there right well so like the, uh, one instance uh he we were at a we were at a bar talking and he ordered uh mccallan 12 and the bartender goes um he goes "Ooh, ordering the, the good stuff for the father and uh, father jim just looked at him he's like I don't need it in your lip. <laughs> it's been a long day. And it's just, it's little nuggets like that. Um, I am Catholic and I've had a very blessed experience in, be, in being so because I've had just all these positive interactions. Uh, and um, while I totally acknowledge that um, they aren't always positive, um, I do believe that you know, there's some good nuggets there. And he introduced me a scotch. And then I started getting, I was like, this is too expensive. I need something a little more in my price point. And then I was daydreaming about uh, getting in shape. And I realized that bourbon is the best price point between alcohol content and calories. Okay. So then I was like, all right, well, then it's almost like keto fad to be drinking bourbon. So I stepped into that about five years ago and really experiencing the different bourbons and stuff. And this is where I come as a, as a lower bracket price point, 
real smooth, uh, very complex, and uh, not all that sweet. So that's why I brought it today. I like it. So this is the the long branch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the first time I've had it. I like it a lot. Good. I think I came across it when I was like watching Longmire, and okay. and the TV show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Long Branch, Longmire. It's got to be good. <laughs> I don't know. I uh, I, uh, I kind of let. I've always let life kind of steer me in the good and bad, so that's how I find these things. It's awesome. I like it. It's first uh, bourbon tasting on Building Value. Yeah, right. And, uh, it's going to have to keep going. Right, especially if we can get sponsorship. I mean, we can do yeah. anything. Long Branch, feel free to uh, reach out. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wild Turkey. Uh, there you go. So, so, and so how did you, you know, you, you said travel the world, decided to grow up. Is that how you ended up at KCI today? So I'm at, yeah, I mean, for the most part is, yeah, it's just this ever-evolving maturity, mm-hmm. right? Um, I watched, uh, I was at the Astros uh, playoff game a couple of years ago when they won the World Series and it was against Boston. And it was the last game that we won and it was awesome. And these two guys got in a fight and these older gentlemen were laughing and they were just like, oh, they just don't have enough gray in their beard. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, and for some weird reason at that moment, I finally started realizing what, what maturity even is. Like, what does that word mean to me? And, uh, yeah, I mean, KCI is uh, being a consultant engineer is, is tough. The markets are up and down. Um, I, I think it's, uh, we kind of get misrepresented as having, you know, a lot of control and, um, Man, we don't. We're as as much a victim to the market and how it responds as anyone else. And uh, you know, our teaming strategies have to be pretty, pretty on point. We got to know a lot of people, and you rise and fall in favor every day. So, um, learning better how to manage that and how to how to grow in that is is kind of how I ended up at KCI, and you know, just trying to always do a quality project. Um, like engineers often, and I'm talking mainly about myself because I don't like to talk about other people, but, you know, I always would kind of sacrifice the relationship for the product as an engineer. Like, it's like you have this quality that you're trying to go through and you're the, that you're trying to attain and, um, like just anything to get there. Like, just let's let's do that. Anything to get there, because I thought that's all that mattered. And then you realize, man, the game's a lot more complex than that. Like, you could get there with the best product in the world, but it, if you don't have any of the relationships on the backside, you're never going to get that opportunity again, no matter how good the product is. Sure. Like, for example, people ask me, hey, you know, why, why are you big on HTS and Texas Air Systems? And why aren't you big on train in Houston? People ask me that. Because as a consultant engineer, people get a little worried. They're like, here, are you flat spec in the sky and whatever. Um, and you're like, no, 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 no. I mean, the product to me, the quality of the product to me is second tier to the level of a relationship that you're going to bring to the owner. I don't want the owner to spend two weeks finding your service guy. Like two days finding your service guy, fine. But you see that in uh, across, you know, 
you know, management and companies and, and different industries, the sales reps and the contractors and everything. It's like, while the product is important, that relationship and that continued investment is everything. And when you start learning the game on that level, then you realize, okay, everything's so interconnected. And I think that's the big jump in maturity and understanding that is how interconnected everything is. And when you understand that everything's interconnected, life changes a lot for you. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, and, and for me, a lot of that just changed because of kids and because of a, you know, supportive wife. And I'm no longer this, this rogue agent that just does whatever he wants. <laughs> so, which I was very good at just being, not necessarily being smart enough to make anything happen, but willing to sacrifice anything to sure. make it happen, which is a destructive personality trait when you let it go untethered. So I'm glad I, for the most part, grew out of that a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of accountability and that, that sense of uh, that you, you know, you have, there's more uh, that you're responsible for than, than just yourself definitely right. kind of forces that maturity to, to happen a l maybe a little bit faster than you're ready for. Yeah. So. Like the fact that if you died, like there's no, always oh no, I mean, that would have a lot of impacts right now for me because I have a family. Mm -hmm. um, and in my 20s, it would too, you know, I, uh, my parents and my sister and, and stuff like that. But but as a 20-year-old man, I didn't think about it at all. Like it was just, it's like, let's do this thing. Yeah. I know? used to fly four times a month right. you know, uh, uh, for work and, and I threw on my headphones, watch my little iPod video, mm -hmm. you know, with episodes of the office that nice. i paid for you know one episode at a time and nice. i thought i was you know light years ahead and it was no big deal and now i get on a plane and you know i gotta take my little happy pills to kind of calm myself down yeah. just to you know because you get up in the air and you're like man what if what if what if this is it right and, right you know leaving everybody at home like you said so yeah definitely uh kind of right but it also can drive you oh i think it's a huge driver when you learn that level of maturity and um and I'm on the I'm on the early edge of it, but I look at these gentlemen that have, in my profession as a consultant engineer, and and you see them and they have you know a couple kids, couple you know they have a well-established family, and man, they are out there just hustling and grinding and going, and and uh, you know in our industry, especially as consultants uh, and architects as well, architects this is true as well. I mean, there are a lot of workaholics in in our in our world, but. But also there aren't at the same time because there's a great level of kind of anxiety relief when when you have work to do. The anxiety for people that are really type A drivers in the consulting world, that anxiety increases when there's no work. Like that's when you start seeing things like they're just so used to grinding away. Sure. And, um, you know, I haven't had that conversation with contractors. Um, I wonder how they do when they get furloughed and turned down but i'm sure it's similar i mean most yeah. most of those guys are are getting after it yeah. day in and day out so yeah i doubt they like sitting around right they're used to doing 12 hour days and then you just sit there and go there's nothing for you to do i'm sure that there's a level of unease there sure um but yeah no i everyone i know that has a healthy family uh those people in our industry man they grind they push and that's why they're in in leadership roles is because they have something to lose, mm -hmm. you know, so. So, so let's talk pumps and HVAC systems. Right, right. I'm, I'm very interested in what you sent me because uh, what I saw from it was, I was like, wait, 
is everything that's old new again? Like, are we going secondary, primary? Like, is that what we're doing? Kind and then, of. And, and, and then I was sitting there thinking about, uh, so I've had a really, really good professional career to where I had kind of just the salty old engineer that was like in charge and they were very difficult to work for, but mainly they were difficult because of, you know, my immaturity, but, um, I mean, to be just, but, uh, I learned a lot from them. And, you know, as a, as a design engineer, um, really about that three year, five year mark, you'll see the engineers that are truly interested in the industry start trying to figure out ways to optimize things. And so, I started getting into VH, uh, VFDs and, mm-hmm. and the pumping and stuff and a lot of the control systems. But and what I'm very interested in knowing about what you're what you uh, mentioned in email is a lot of the systems that I early in my career wanted to design, but nobody would pay for them. They would kind of be hunting okay? because you would have uh, sometimes you want to be efficient and you don't have an understanding of what I call the system system sensitivity. And what I mean by system sensitivity is like while your controls can measure to like the tenth of a second, the water molecule that's going through your system and, you know, going the route of the system and then being used as a heat transfer medium and then coming back, maybe that's 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's an hour, but it's definitely not 0.1 seconds. Sure. Right. And so that's where I feel like a lot of the hunting would come in and if you had a primary vfd variable primary system and from what i understood was some kind of variable secondary system and i can only assume that that makes sense because these are fractional horsepowers that are now turned into ecm motors Mm -hmm. so i i get that but i had a lot of questions about about like i'm all in i'm all in but then i'm like wait how how yeah and then the other thing i was thinking i was like Dude, how pissed off would I be if I had to walk around everywhere and change out a pump that's magically hung up somewhere and I don't have access to? And then I was like, what? and then I went down a rabbit hole and I was like, wait, do I put those pumps on the emergency light system? Like, because they are just ECM motors. So I got a lot of ideas. Yeah. I went down a couple of rabbit holes in my head. And, you no, know, that's great. Yeah, you so present it and uh, yeah. let's talk through it. So, I mean, I would say the, you know, if we're going to talk, hydronic loops you know chill water heating hot water the pumps are kind of the the stepchild right it's like okay let's let's worry about the chillers the boilers and the cooling tower Mm -hmm. let's get that you know and then our our air handlers fan cool units all that those are the big things right right? and then at the end of the day they're like okay by the way we need to move water to all of these (laughs) things right and it's like i don't really care how the water gets there i just need to make sure i have enough of it right right and so and i get that they're you know you look at on bid day, the, the cost difference between these things. And it's like, okay, the pumps, let's, <laughs> right. let's, let's throw those in there too. Right. Um, and, but in reality, that, that water moving through the system is actually what's transferring all of the heat, right? I mean, we're mm-hmm. taking the heat from the air, yep. moving to the water, to the chiller, and then out to the air through the, yeah, through the cooling tower. It's like saying the, the liver and heart are like really important, but blood doesn't mean anything. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, so you, I, I love that comparison. We mm-hmm. do that all the time. You know, if we're looking at the building, you know, the water is obviously the blood, and then mm-hmm. the the uh, heart is the pump, and then mm-hmm. the the brain is the controls. Right. And so, really, where where this 
kind of goes along that same line is that you know you can you can put any pump in there and move it mm -hmm. right and then but you can only maybe control it to a certain point depending right. on how you size that and right. you know where where this conversation started with us was on the partial load conditions right which in general if we talk about how pumps or other equipment may be selected mm -hmm. uh in general is let's look at the worst case scenario yep and make sure we're covered for that but yep if we're just choosing a single pump right and our best efficiency point is at this condition that we may never see right we're always operating well, less than that and right? i feel like you and sarah did a great job explaining that and i i love data i'm you know i was a high school math teacher <laughs> and, uh i guarantee um, you know, if any of my students ever see this video, they're like, God, he was the worst. But Because um, <laughs> I'm very passionate about math and statistics, mainly because I'm a big baseball fan. Sure. Um, but so I loved what you all said. And, you know, in I've seen a lot of design engineers take and size something exactly what you're talking about. They'll put it in a duplex system. Mm -hmm. But they, they I learned this a long time ago and I, I stopped doing it a long time ago. Really, I stopped it right when a five-horsepower pump could be put in a vertical. Mm -hmm. As soon as that, that centrifugal pump, five-horsepower, was in a vertical, now they have, like, 50-horsepower. They can be put in a vertical. like uh, Hundreds of hundreds, horsepower. Yeah. Hundreds. So now it's, like, not a thing because it, that's where the industry went. But as soon as I saw them take a five-horsepower, I was like, now I'm, now I'm done with the way things used to be because – what they would do is they would do really are as a design professional, all we're doing is we're maximize, we're calculating the maximum and minimum mm -hmm. really. That's it. And that was fine in the 1970s. Um, that is not fine. Now we need to figure out something else. And I, when I realized that at about five years in, I was like, no, I'm going to do triplex systems. Sure. And I stepped away from the 1780 and I stepped to triplex systems, the 3500. And th the way I started doing triplex systems, which now after listening to you and Sarah, I might even go quadplex systems. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is when I did my triplex systems, and this is the same sequence I did on condenser water as well as the chilled water. But what I did is I said, okay, if I was at 80%, of my my design condition, mm -hmm. okay, that needs to be satisfied by one pump. Okay, no, by two pumps. Okay, if I was a hundred percent of my design condition, I go. I'm gonna get there by all three. Okay, and then what I said is I went to the chiller minimum. Mm -hmm. Okay, in order to keep that going, and I wanted one pump to be at about about thirty five percent capacity. At the chiller minimum. Okay. Okay. So it's kind of, there's not really redundancy there. And the old engineers, what they would do is they would go one, that does the chiller minimum barely. And it does, and, it, and you, you know, you'll get to that peak and you're fine. Mm -hmm. And then you have a redundant one. And I didn't believe in that. Um, what I figured was if you lost your pump and you're in Houston, Texas, I was like, all right. If you lose a pump and you need redundancy, my system would give you redundancy to about an 80% capacity instead of a 100% capacity redundancy. But the controls and the selections I was giving you were really intended at a 50% duty point. Like, But now I'm listening to Sarah and everything. I'm like, well, 
maybe I'm not as aggressive. I'm, I need to be more aggressive with that and focus more on like the 25 to 35%. And then I'm really doing something. So, and we could go off on a tangent about Mm -hmm. temperature reset on condenser water loops, because here in Houston, Texas, uh, if you have a condenser water loop and it doesn't do temperature reset, just give me a call. I'll make you money because that's, well, there's two ways to look at that. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could do the temperature reset, but you could also at the partial load drive the condenser water down if you're able to use multiple towers. Right. And increase the efficiency of the chiller. And that's, you know, there's both, there's two different ways to look at it. And, you know, okay, how much am I going to save by resetting on my tower versus improving my chiller efficiency? And, and where this all kind of ties back to that is, is with the designing the pump systems to that partial load is being more efficient at the partial load with the pumps, Mm -hmm. which in turn will make the rest of the system more, potentially more efficient depending on how those controls are, right? Because ultimately we want to, we would increase that delta T to the chiller. So let's not forget about this distributed pump system. Sure. Because I'm going to dive deep on this. Yeah. this I'm going to get into this over here. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I agree with you 100%. Like, what if what if instead of a temperature reset, we just drive the temperature down, and now that energy is saved in the chiller? Yep. What if? So where I come with that is I want to see a system, and I haven't seen this system yet, a water-to-wire full efficiency calculation to where – I take my chilled water evaporator side mm-hmm. and then I take my condenser water side and I put those on metered panels. Okay. So think of a controls dashboard, okay? Now I'm seeing the power from each pump system, power from the chiller, power from the cooling tower, and I have all of that. Then I wanted to do a comparative analysis and optimize that system across sure. based off the, elec- the electrical usage. Right then. That makes sense. That makes sense. But I haven't seen anything like that. Well, I mean, like you said earlier, you got to find somebody to pay for it. <laughs> but but what's interesting is, I mean, if it depends on the type of cooling tower you're using too, right? right. Like you, you may not be able to meet the minimum mm-hmm. uh, flow or get enough coverage on the media to right. for it to be efficient. So if you are able to spread that load of a single, you know, say you have two chillers, two cooling towers. Yep. If you can take that single load of... Uh, one chiller to two cooling towers right then you can start then it may make sense to drive down it may but if you can't do that it may be better just to reset your right to your condenser water but uh, yeah without but without that data without those sure without that data point and going water to wire and really figuring that out i mean you could you could follow the ashray 36 optimized control sequences all you want but what i'm saying is and you could even grow this system that we're talking about you could do a localized weather station. You could do an online linked weather station that gives you like a 10-day window. Mm-hmm. Like let's say we're in the middle of a season, so things aren't really changing around. We could almost get to a place to where we're pr- a predictive control system instead of a reactive control system. We could almost get there now. And in with the chiller sequences, it's like why wouldn't you make it so that – like let's say you had two chi- two cooling towers – why and let's say we're in part load we we need to have stepped part load like and you would want each tower fan on this metered system as well because you would want to know the truth like if I, if you if i was designing a building for you i would do two to three cooling towers in in this hypothetical situation and i would say okay at max load the fans are 100% the the water's going over the fill at 100% boom partial load i would go okay 
the fans are at, at optimum efficiency and the water is going over all of them. Okay. Now a minimum partial load, I'd flow over all three with no fans. If you get the free cooling, sure. If you could get the free cooling, depending on that local weather station, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But, but in all of that's great ideas and that's, that's, you know, 15 years of experience and paying attention, but all of it's just an opinion. And what our, what our industry really needs is let's step away from opinions. Um, just because it's how you've always done it, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way. And while ASHRAE does a great job of R&D and data collection and doing white papers, I truly believe in the private industry and its ability to find solutions for itself. Mm-hmm. And, and this isn't going to work for like a Home Depot. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it would work great for these institutional, for a university. It worked great. Anybody that has the longevity in their institution that's going to be around 25, 50 years, why not collect data for three years, have all the bits and pieces, so the data collection's there, mm-hmm. and then come back in a three-year window and be like, all right, we know everything, and now let's optimize. Sure. That would be, that is, you know, I know a lot of facility managers, and that's what they want to do, but, you know, they don't have the, the authority or the reporting structure to like make that happen. But I mean, all the facility managers I know, they own their building. They take a lot of pride in it. Yeah. Yeah, They want to know as much as possible. Right. And it's getting easier and and less expensive um, to, to do some of those things. Um, And I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the tower tech cooling towers, Um, but it's, it's, it's a basically a modular tower that uh, in itself. So it has, you know, up to eight, 10, 12 fans, uh, okay. smaller fans, max seven and a half horsepower each. Okay. And you ramp all of them up and down together with a single VFD. Interesting. Um, and it's, it's a nozzle spray nozzle water okay. distribution system that's pressurized. And so it can handle anywhere from hundred to 300 GPM per nozzle. So, so basically oh. like, you know, uh, and there's one nozzle per fan. Okay. Right? So, okay. so basically if you, if you're looking at it, like I can do between hundred and 300 GPM per fan. Like okay. that's how I, how, you know, how much you know the flow, nominal flow through the tower. But that's really where when you have that type of tower, it's much easier to run at that partial load, especially across two towers. So they took fan wall technology and they put it into cooling towers? And the fans are on the bottom. They're not on the top. So are they blowing out the bottom or are they blowing out the side? Blowing up the top. It's counterflow. Counterflow. And it has a water collection system that allows the water to be caught and moved into a moving flow through basin okay there's not a standstill basin okay and the air i love so okay. it's like about i think the water's moving about five to seven feet per second through the tower so it okay. doesn't actually sit there right so That's i awesome. mean so it does it does take you know good piping yeah to it to to balance it yes and, and to make sure you're not overflowed in one basin okay. and not the other uh you're starving another but if you can uh, use those multiple towers for mm-hmm. a single chiller on partial loads. That's where you can yeah. either see, okay, is, am I saving the money on the energy of the fans? Yep. Or do I want to drive that temperature down Yep. and, and save the money on the chiller? So it's kind of a... So, so if you had these multiple fans, mm-hmm. um, back to this system sensitivity sure. conversation, uh, how many pumps like would you have there? Because the... If a traditional HVAC system is operating at 25 
percent, you know, per, per what Sarah said. And and I haven't looked at her data. I I haven't had the time, but um, sh- she's you know highly reputable. So sure. I just believe her. Um, she's smarter than I am. So I, I go from there. <laughs> Definitely smarter than I am. Um, but but if we have that, and let's say a normal system is this cooling tower and this chiller, and then and we were we used to be a duplex system. But now we have this crazy cooling tower and this distributed system that you're Mm -hmm. talking about. How does that impact the number of pumps and and this pump selection? Sure. I mean, you can still do conventional pumps with with the Tower Tech Tower. So um, you you would um, just need to run as many pumps as you want the flow. So it would still, let's let's say you have traditional condenser water pumps. You have one condenser water pump per chiller. Okay. And... But you would just be you would have motorized valves on the inlets of the um, of the towers to yep. whether or not you're flowing through both or yes. not, right? Yes. So your condenser water pumps still interlocked with your chillers, okay. but you could just like where kind of where we were going with the pump conversation is designed to that lower flow condition and then add multiple pumps to get to that redundancy that you want at okay. the full load. You would have obviously you'd have to have different controls okay. to be able to uh, either control that against you know, flow or, um, the differential pressure. I mean, really you're looking for the flow to, to maintain the proper flow, okay. uh, through there. And, and, you know, I think condenser water pumps, a lot of those may get overlooked for the, the, the balancing. Yeah. Um, and it, it becomes critical with the, the, the tower type because you don't want to pull too much okay. on the basin because yeah. there's just not as much margin for air. Um, so if you're over pumping, you can draw that basin down, introduce air into the system. Okay. But if you're balancing those with flow, especially using BFDs, right. that's another place. Say, so, I mean, I, you know, you go out and don't want to see a condensed water pump, right. you know, crank down with a valve to to, right. to balance it. But, but yeah, I mean, there's multiple ways to attack the the pumping on the condensed water side that are still, you know, relatively simple. Yeah, my concern is just. Um like things are easy mm-hmm. when one thing is constant and one thing's varying, and things get crazy when both things are varying. Sure. And um, with that many fans, I've never I've never even looked into that system. And with that many fans, um, uh, maybe you can uh, put me at ease when we talk about all these pumps out there sure. instead of control valves. Yeah, I'm happy to to dive deep into the the tower tech whenever whenever you would like to do that. So if we, um, but ultimately the you know the water doesn't know how many fans but any if you lose a fan you lose you know just a fraction of the yeah. capability right but you still have the free cooling there so you know the you know if we move back onto the the chill water side for the distributed pumping you know let's say you have a typical you know variable primary system we're going to have our uh you know probably large chill water pumps size like you said yeah. you know redundant for the chiller on a VFD, looking at differential pressure, okay. maybe pr- proportional pressure for the whole loop. And then, you know, out at all of the devices, your air handlers, fan cool units, anything else, you're going to have a, a control valve yeah. and a probably a flow balancing valve. So the control valve on the inlet, flow balancing on the outlet. Yep. And that is to, you know, as long as that unit is running, you're going to maintain that constant flow through the device, right? Yeah. So in order for that to work, the chill water pumps have to generate all the pressure for the system. Right. And then for the control valve to work, it has to have that differential. So it's going to be reducing yeah. that pressure. So, I mean, it's, it's an energy Eater. using device, yeah. right? Yeah. So with the distributed pumping, basically you're just, you're taking any, anything that was a control valve 
and re- replacing it with a, a smart pump, an ECM pump. Okay. And you can do that and leave the existing control system in place. Okay. So literally that control system can just send that signal to the pump instead of uh, the control valve. So it's just ramping a pump up and down mm-hmm. rather than uh, opening and closing opening the control zone. And then it has, like the, the Magnet 3 specifically has a flow limit feature in it. So if you say, I want to flow no more than okay. 7 GPM or 2.5 GPM, whatever it okay. is, through this uh, fan coil unit, then it will limit it so you don't have to have the flow control valve as well. So then does it do a minimum and maximum and then like a 4 to 20 like, uh, you know, linear regression to figure out, you know, where you're at or is it precise enough to sit there and you're calculating off leaving air temperature? So yes to all of it, uh, cool. potentially. depends on how you want to do it. So it does have a minimum speed okay. uh, and it would be enabled and disabled by... Okay. Either the control system or that unit, you know, if it's that unit's running and it needs water, it would enable the pump and then it would run. So you can either have that external control signal from building automation that's looking at the uh, external or the uh, the air temperature um, and it can send that 4 to 20 or 0 to 10 signal yeah. and ramp it up and down. Or it has built in uh, differential pressure and temperature transmitters in it. So you could okay. look at the um, or you can bring in an external sensor for temperature so if you want to look at leaving air temperature or leaving water temperature you could index against those okay. um, and it can control to that okay uh, so there's a lot of different ways that you can do that okay. you can also like on a fan cool you could also do it on differential pressure proportional pressure uh, any of those control modes all built in to it but the simplest way to do it is literally leave the control system as it is mm-hmm. and just have it control the pump instead of a valve and so what that does it does a couple of things one is now you're distributing out the the load of the pumping to all of these smaller pumps so your your primary pumps can become much smaller they they're well, yeah, actually you would not take the coil drop out of the primary pump you would take that that run the return pipe the everything. return pipe okay but with the primary so but with this primary system for lack of a better word with this primary piping system kind of behave more like a reservoir like would it be smarter to make it flow slower and a little like not reduce the pipe size and and really what you're using the VFD for is just like a final tuning of the system and then you have all these quick hits off these little pumps kind of behaving. Sure. So you're gonna have a bypass um, well, of course, in, yes. in the you know in the in the plant from the supply yeah. to the return and that's where the excess is is gonna yeah. return and so there's there's kind of two two different parts of control, right? Like, so all the distributed pumps can do just what we said. And then you could take the existing primary pumps and just ramp them down. Okay. Right. Or you can, uh, replace the existing primary controls with like, for this instance, the Grumfoss controller. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it, it looks at, uh, first differential across the the chiller to make sure we're satisfying minimum flow across the chiller. And then as long as that's satisfied, then it starts to look at, four temperature sensors on the bypass. Okay. Okay, Before and after the bypass on both the supplier and the return. Okay. And basically looking at those, it can know if the system is balanced or if the supply is bleeding to the return or if the return is bleeding to the supply. Okay. And depending on which of those is happening, it's going to ramp the pumps up and down. Okay. Right. So if the, if the supply is bleeding into the return, Mm -hmm. then we can slow the pumps down. Okay. To balance it back out. If the returns, bleeding into the supply, then we need to ramp the pumps up, the primary pumps up. Okay. And so what they've seen in the trials on this is that the just replacing the control valves with 
the smart pumps. Not and they they slowed down the primary pumps, but it was still the same primary pumps mm-hmm. they had. Was I think it was thirty two percent energy wow. savings, and then well, they estimated over fifty percent when they would switch the primary pumps to this controls but the and and the I totally believe it and here's here's why I believe it is because on the air side we have a very similar system it's uh you know we have a VAV mm-hmm. series uh, series fan power box uh, these these series fan power boxes are are pretty much in concept the same thing uh just an air air instead of water sure um because uh so, so anyway but it, it is a no, it is still about the same, especially if you control off the leaving air temperature of the air handling unit. You're you have you set that at constant. Mm-hmm. Are we at a place right now to where, let's say my entire waterside system, I want to optimize it based off of my leaving air temperature, and let's say that let's say my set point on my leaving air temperature is uh, fifty three. Okay, what if I wanted to optimize what if we ran all the calculations and we did all the analysis and the water to wire calculation said you know what driving this leaving air temperature colder right now actually saves us money like are we at a place right now with that that full interconnected to where we could do that i think we're getting there okay and and so the the last point i'll make on the the savings which was probably I think potentially the most significant was the increase in delta T in the system. Yeah. So it increased almost three degrees. It was 2.7 wow. degrees delta T increase. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a chiller expert, but yeah. you've got to think that that's going to improve your, your chiller performance to, well, to yeah. have that, to have that delta T. Right. So yeah. that is where that impact starts to grow. Right. Okay. Like same, same thing with what do you do with your condenser water versus yeah. the chiller, right? If we're all, if we're, you know, trying to improve that chiller performance, then that that was the ultimate effect in that uh, that trial. And this is not like a pie in the sky kind of a thing. I yeah. mean, this is something that the Grunfoss is already doing and developed, and and it's you know on a roadmap for later this year in the U.S. But I mean, you could, without needing the controls for the primary, you could change out control valves to ECM pumps, like yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. Um. And you know, so that whole idea of this uh, predictive. Uh, not even necessarily the um, predictive maintenance, but this this uh, you know this analysis of the of the system based on all this information. Yeah. Uh, there's a company called Copper Tree Analytics that Grunfoss yeah. has partnered with, and yeah. that's that's essentially um, what they're doing, right? They've okay. they've analyzed all this, all this information, have these algorithms to yep. tell them, hey, this is how you can optimize yeah. certain things. And I mean, that's that's a little bit outside of uh, <laughs> what I'm able to. Uh, you know, really be able to, to talk about, but that, I think we're getting there. Yeah, no, it, and it does seem to make sense based off the water side. I mean, on the water side, on the air side, sorry. I mean, series fan power boxes have had mm-hmm. ECM motors in them for probably, I don't know, seven years, something like that. So it makes sense to me from a, a, a movement of energy and efficiency, but what I, what I'm concerned about is it usually takes 20 years for <laughs> like, Somebody, because everybody's like, that, I'm not going to be the guinea pig. Sure. And that's that's always the statement. So, I, you know, I think just in general, there's there is some conservatism in design. Like, you're, yes. you're, you know, to take that that jump to, and especially something like this to say, okay, let's let's go ahead and do this. Right. Where I think in, in the aftermarket, you might be able to get to uh, that, that building owner or property manager that would see 
the numbers and see right. the savings and be like, look, I'm willing to, to give this a shot on one of my buildings. And, right. and then I think that's where you can prove it out and, and start to grow it. So, so I think, I think what, what would be quite amazing. And I think the market entry point is that retrofit world. And I think the right way to do it is this, let's say a client wants to increase their chiller plant capacity by 15%. And you know, their mechanical room is already built out and they mm-hmm. get all this headache and, and whatever you're able to go in and be like, what if, what if 15% was satisfied by just that 2.7 Delta? You know what I mean? Sure. Like thinking of the amount of savings, the amount of sales, like that's not even a sales pitch. That's just straight up easy money. Sure. And, um, that's where, man, that would be a great opportunity to walk around and really talk about that. Another thing that, um, I think, I believe Adam brought up, um, what that I was like, really opened my eyes was in these multiple pump pump systems. He said that um, they're talking to each other mm-hmm. and they're figuring out what I should be doing, like as a package, yep. like, is it one running full tilt? Is it all of them running partial load? And they're just figuring out that that themselves. And man, that's great. I, yeah. just, I wish we could, it's kind of like cell phone apps right now to where like each piece of equipment's like, well, we can handle our stuff. I don't know about those guys, you know, cause the chiller guys will tell you the same thing. It's like our chiller, you know, move all the energy, all the work to the chiller, make it do all the work for you. And then depending on the different, uh, the chiller type is like, no, 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 no. Oversize the chiller and make it run part load. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, and you get lost in all these, all these different apps. I'm going to call them apps because because <laughs> that's where we are right now. And um, so, like, the cooling tower is, like, I can make my stuff the most efficient. And then the chiller guy goes, I make my stuff the most efficient. And the pumps, obviously, you all mm-hmm. can do that, too. But what I'm wondering is, where are we going to get to this this water-to-wire concept? And now we're tying all these apps actually together. Because, listen, the controls isn't actual programming. It's we need it to get to the place where it is actual open data that we are, you know, really diving into and understanding. We need to get there. I mean, I think one of the biggest, uh, in the past, you know, one of the biggest issues was really, you know, like large companies having proprietary information and proprietary controls. And I, I'm of the opinion that if you had an actual control system that was, actually programmed and actually looking at data. I mean, I could probably go to like 2009 IECC. You give me that equipment with a control system that's actually paying attention and I will beat out a a, a 2015 IECC design system. Like let's know how the building's behaving and then operate and and optimize from there. Yeah. It's going to be, interesting to see how that all plays out because you know i think when you look at a company like grumfoss where they they build the pumps they build right. the vfds they build the controls they they're going to be able to control that piece of equipment right. right and the chiller guys are going to be the same with their right. with their chiller right they i mean how many however long experience they have controlling that piece of equipment yeah but to have that bigger picture like you said to say okay right. what's actually happening in the system right and how should i tell each piece of equipment where they need to be right and I think that's that, whether it's carpentry or anybody else out there doing those, yep. that predictive analysis or whatever you want to call it, I think is that's where 
you're going to be able to tie it all together and Correct. you know instead of having you know you'll have that that folder on your on your phone that has all those apps but you yeah. just have to go to this one to right to optimize it it's like this industry has always been a lot of tribes like i'm the boiler tribe you're the pump tribe i'm the chiller tribe we need to start like nation building <laughs> like, i don't know how to get these get everybody in line and start nation building and uh uh, whoever wants to put that together and actually get everybody in line and actually put that higher level of analytics over the top, man, I tell you, that's a, that'd be a good investment because what we also need to do with that is in these facility condition assessments, you know, we need to take that to that higher level as well. You know, you have the different disciplines going out and the different trades going out and looking at things and the all these facility managers really need a prioritization of of what does need to be changed but this concept of inventory management is is something that people are really starting have started really stepping into but like as a manufacturer i mean grumfoss is iso 9001 and you know that's a chain of custody uh supply chain management platform that says all these little boxes were checked mm -hmm. and it's like why not why not take that to our industry that concept and really take it to the industry of managing equipment, having records and logs on, you know, when they're maintained, how they're operating. And I mean, think of how, I mean, you could get to a place to where your, your filters automatically are purchased. Mm -hmm. Like you could write a web crawler that went and looked at your filters, did a price, a price differential, and then was like, all right. And then order from that person. We, we could be there. It's there. It happens, and like I said, it's it's still siloed, right? Like right. so, so the IntelliHot, the the water heaters, they do they have the telecare that monitors the system, mm -hmm. and when when those parts get to a certain oh cool percentage of service life, boom, here come the replacement parts. Nice, and you know that is that's it's built in to yeah. their system, and it's because it's reading all of these systems all over the U.S. and yeah. aggregating the data and knowing when these things are gonna get worn out. Yep, and there you go. Well, and I know people are thinking about it. I mean, sure. like five years ago or I, I don't know. I I forget when you have kids, I, I swear to God, I used to have a really good memory. But I, I've i started saying the other day because I just don't remember how much time has passed. But I mean, IBM Watson, mm -hmm. uh, there was that commercial the other day. And the, you know, the elevator repairman shows up at the front desk. And he's like, I'm here to fix the elevator. And front desk guy is like, the elevator's fine. What's going on? And it's because Watson told him that something sure. was the pro there was a high probability that this component was going to break soon and needed service, and um, you know most of the facility managers that I talk to, they they feel like they're under understaffed and underfunded, and and a great pivot from the mindset of I don't have what I need is the automation mm -hmm. and utilizing data to get back to a place to where you feel like you're in control of your facility and you know, it's back to yours and, and this is a great place to be. Yeah. So like you said, comes down to getting somebody to pay for it, getting someone to pay for it right now is going to be even more of a challenge. Right. But what's interesting is that there's been some programs that have, uh, that have been out for a while mm -hmm. that facilitate exactly this type of, uh, you know, capital upgrades. Right. So have you, have you heard of pace? Yes. Property assess clean energy. So yep. I we, mean that is a unbelievable tool mm -hmm. that that is out there to be to be taken advantage of right. for this exact you know, anything that can reduce water or energy in a building, yep. 
you can use it to pay for it over a long time. Yeah, back when I had my own firm, we were one of the first firms that actually did a PACE project. And that was, I think that's a great idea and a great initiative. And uh, I, I wish that it had grown a little bigger and sure. a little better. But, um, but the other thing that I think people aren't realizing on the COVID-19 thing is everybody's focusing airside and properly so because it's all about particle control mm -hmm. and infectious disease but what's gonna what's gonna happen with that air side is the increased air rotations through the space and the increased outside air and ventilation okay so now we're talking water side because we're talking about system system capacity now if you're not pulling data and and you don't truly know how your system's running you could run into a multi-million dollar renovation project like that because you're going to have an engineer, you're going to have a, a, a contractor come in and not have an understanding of the baseline of your system because you haven't been pulling the data. So you're either going to have to pay them to baseline your system or they're going to go pull the nominal the, the nominal tonnages and the no, nominal capacities. Sure. And then because they don't want to be liable for it, they're going to add a safety factor. And now maybe you're paying millions of dollars when, when what if only a 2.7 degree delta is all you needed to satisfy now stepping into a world to where our buildings actually take into consideration indoor air quality. I mean, that's that's a huge thing that I think people aren't realizing. The air side transfers to the water side. The water mm -hmm. side is where it starts. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that's not something that's that demand for that indoor air quality or those changes that ASHRAE is uh, those guidelines, right. those aren't going away. I mean, that's, no. I, I think, and, and people, the tenants, the guests are going to be driving that to say, well, what are you doing right. to make this building safe? Well, I hope they do. But I had a great discussion the other day. I was like, so uh, one of my favorite spots in Houston is Huey's. Uh, it's there in the Heights. It's this, it's like a Vietnamese gastropub. I, okay. I love it. And anyways, um, the way I explained it to people is it's like Vietnamese food with a great bar. Okay. Okay. Sounds awesome. Right. Right. Because <laughs> traditionally, that's not that's not how those places work. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you can go, and what I love about it is you go, you eat, you drink, you have a great time. Okay. You're about $40 in. It's not expensive. Nice. Right. Okay. But let's say that they, and they get, they do everything needed for COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, they're a DX. They got DX rooftop units and stuff like that. That forty dollar meal would be two hundred dollars. Yeah. Are you gonna? Are you going to go to a restaurant for two hundred dollars? Yeah. Well, and it, especially if they're limited on their capacity, right? Right. Yeah. So, so then it, it exactly. And so the conversation is who's going to pay for it, and it, in the end of the day, I mean, the taxpayers always pay for it, but. In some way or the other, you're as a p private citizen, you're going to pay for it, you know, either not through taxes and just inflated prices, mm -hmm. or you're going to pay for it through subsidies, subsidies and all these other things. I mean, uh, what people don't understand, uh, I, I saw this great presentation at ASHRAE. Uh, let's see, I, I graduated in 05, so this is probably 05, 06, and this is up in Portland, Oregon, and this guy must have been a genius of some kind because he went and got an engineering degree got bored and then when got became a medical doctor and, and and i think his doctorate was like in lungs or something i don't know i was in my early 20s didn't pay a lot of attention but i did catch on to this 
what he was talking about, which is the sick building syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that's a real thing. Uh, and, but that didn't drive any changes in the HVC world. Like, I would say that they're outside of a hospital, there is not a building designed to reduce infectious disease that outside of a hospital. Sure. Nobody, nobody's looking at it past that. So you're looking at what? 95% of all built buildings. Yeah. 95% of 99% of the built environment. Yeah. So who's going to pay for that? And, and, or are we going to have a, are we going to pivot? And and instead of this high density urbanization, are we going to go rural? Are we going to lean on our technology, this work from home? Are we going to start like, micro satellite offices of only 10 people like how are we going to behave and respond because the amount of money required that's going to come from us in one way or another it might it might be insurmountable i don't know Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thought because like you said i mean it i've already seen you know comments on next door facebook to say hey what's this extra fee that i'm seeing on my restaurant bill right and it's like well, they have new costs for sanitization and, and mm-hmm. upgrades and these things. And like, ultimately, are you willing to take the risk to go out? Yeah. And then are you going to pay more? Right. Uh, I think some people will, right? And and hopefully, we you know we get to a point where we have the vaccine. And and but when's the next one right going to happen? Or right. do you have to continually be prepared for that that next time that it that it could happen? So. Well, and I think we're. I, I think anyone that understands the level of globalization that we're currently at, and that's only going to increase. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm all for globalization because of globalization. We've had a huge reduction in, in extreme poverty. And, you know, the, and the more that opens up, the more countries open up, man, there's a lot of benefit there, but we're more connected than we've ever been. And, um, but I, but we need to stay more connected than we've ever been. I think it would be a huge, I would think we'd miss out on a lot if we took everything to a virtual space. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't, you know, this is my first time being in front of a human being aside from my <laughs> wife and kids, you know, and uh, I, I missed this. There's sure. a, there's an intangible. Uh, Absolutely. Humans are so, we're so complex. And, uh, but um, I, do you know much about horses? No, I don't. Not okay. a lot. I probably my my brother in law has horses, so I probably okay. probably well, should know more. We should call a friend, right? <laughs> so horses are very social animals. Okay, so if you ha- and I'm not a horse expert, my mom and my sister are, and my dad, but I'm not. But uh, horses are an extremely social animal, and uh, that's why they build such close relationships with their owners and stuff. But l- let's say you have four horses that all know each other and they run around the pasture together and stuff. But then you take one of those horse horses and you put them in the, uh, in the stall. Well, they will, they whinny and the one in the stall will kick and cause all of this. And it's, it's because they want that connection. They Mm want to be part of the herd. They want, they, it drives us. And I think that's what people are going to realize is that when we had the connection, we all jumped in the virtual to escape it but now we're all forced in the virtual. I'm hoping that drives that connection back. Sure. But in the back to the conversation, the globalism, I mean, sharing these ideas, learning from e- each other in person. Uh, I don't know about you, but engineers are notoriously horrible at communication. <laughs> and I'm, 
I hey, I I've I've done this as well. You're having a bad day. You send a horrible email, and in the email you are like Genghis Khan, like you will burn Rome down. But if you were in face to face with those human beings, it's not you're not going to go to that level. Sure. You went to that level because you're staring at a box. Sure. You're staring at a computer, and and that's why I think this globalism needs to increase and. And if we look at it as restricting that as as a res- as our solution to the pandemic, we're really missing out on things we just don't know. We don't know what it will inspire. Sure. Being around other human beings. So I I do I love the idea of the ruralization and getting these ghost towns back and mm-hmm. rejuvenated. Like up in Oregon, you know, these these lumber towns that you know, the, the lumber industry dried up and, you know, they're little ghost towns. And then, I mean, think of what it would do for Texas. Think of what it would do for the land-based oil, oil right now and getting, you know, instead of 6 million people living in Houston and like roughly 4 million people in DFW, what if we had a whole bunch of these communities at like 100,000 people and would we, would we actually develop community again? Yeah. I don't know. I, but, but there's a huge possibility there. Mm-hmm. And, I would personally, being in this industry, I would love for somebody to pay for all these buildings to get fixed. I mean, I would never sure. run out of work. <laughs> never. Like, I wouldn't, no one would be able to hire enough people to get it done. Sure. Like, um, everything would, but, and that would be great, but I think we'd be missing out on something. Yeah, you know, like you mentioned the virtual when we when we first got into the pandemic and i mean i was we were doing the virtual happy hours and right. we had a virtual trivia night and, mm-hmm. and you know but it it definitely doesn't replace right. the, the real thing the face-to-face i think there are going to be things uh that will become zoom calls that yeah. that used to be right you know maybe boondoggles or, or yeah. something else but uh but yeah i mean there's going to be that level that okay l- this needs to be done in person yeah maybe so maybe I think there's gonna be a balance yeah, and I hope so. I mean, maybe project managers, instead of hosting meetings because they're bored, they realize, <laughs> you know, it, hey, this is Houston, Texas, and I don't need to be stuck in traffic for two hours, so let's do a Zoom call. That would be great. Mm-hmm. But um, early in my career in, in project management, um, I, I, as an engineer, I love process. And it's like, if you know the process, you know what's expected of you, therefore you're going to deliver. But you, but where I really failed in that mentality is the fact that you just don't know what human beings are going to talk about. And until you get to 10 people in the room, you have no idea how that's going to shake out. And depending on the dynamic of the team, if you're really focused on the culture and the dynamic of the team, you're always going to have a positive result. Now, if you have people in that room that are a cancer to that room, you're always going to have a negative result. Sure. But the process and the control of the dialogue is never the right way to do it. Cause you got to, you never know uh, that the in-person thing, you just never know, you never yeah. know what you can get. I mean, you can tell we're, we're still kind of shifting people back in, into the office yeah. and, um, you know, trying to take all these precautions, but you can tell there's definitely like a lift mm-hmm. in morale for, for people that are, are right. back in the office and, seeing people and right. you know just having that that interaction i mean i can tell you my wife's not necessarily excited that i'm yeah. not at home all the right. time you know hey when, when are you gonna be home when yeah. are you gonna be home you know and because she, she's working right. from home right and everything too so uh so yeah it's um 
but it, but it did feel good to actually put uh you know jeans on for once and uh <laughs> i you know it, i was i was thinking to myself and i texted a couple of my friends i was like when are we going to admit the business casual is like a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops so like are we there yet like are are we there as an industry yet and um but you know actually wearing you know shoes and and jeans was it was actually is strangely nice yep yeah, definitely had the anchorman style going for a while. Where it was like a you know polo and then basketball shorts. Or yes, something. it's like yeah. and, and you know your your house shoes. Uh, as long as you looked you know zoom, from here up on the zoom, zoom ready, you, you zoom were good ready. to go, right? So previous episodes of uh, building value with <laughs> using the technology definitely uh, yeah. definitely use that. So, but we we are definitely wearing pants today, right? <laughs> hey, Wait, but if it gets us more <laughs> views, we're not. So yeah. whatever. <laughs> Whatever gets you paying attention, just let us know. There you go. That's awesome. So any anything else? I mean, we we covered a broad spectrum today, but anything else? Any other questions about the distributed pumping or anything else? Any other topics you want to talk about? Maybe advice you might have for, for any of your clients or uh, building owners, things like that? I, I don't have any advice, but what I'm, what I'm going to look into um, and kind of – request is you know how what is the additional cost to step from a triplex or quadplex mm-hmm. and what kind of value do i get there and 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 seeing that um that's what i'm going to do personally sure. I, I thought i was like crazy doing a triplex but uh i always love being a little crazy so i guess i guess four of them is what i'm doing now so I keep going man we can go right. five six five we're, it, we're, we're turning into the mock razor right like um we're gonna be mock yes. 20 here here in a second well great thanks again for uh for being on and you know everybody that uh, was watching and listening today i appreciate you watching this episode and we will see you on the next episode of building value